everyone. We're going to be reading from 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 1 to 10. Boasting is necessary. It is not profitable, but I will move on to visions and revelations of the Lord. I know a man in Christ who was caught up to the third heaven 14 years ago. Whether he was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. God knows. I know that this man, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows, was caught up into paradise and heard inexpressible words, which a human being is not allowed to speak. I'll boast about this person, but not about myself, except of my weaknesses. For if I want to boast, I wouldn't be a fool, because I would be telling the truth. But I will spare you, so that no one can credit me with something beyond what he sees in me or hears from me, especially because of the extraordinary revelations. Therefore, so that I would not exalt myself, a thorn in the flesh was given to me, a messenger of Satan, to torment me so that I would not exalt myself. Concerning this, I pleaded with the Lord three times that it would leave me. But he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, and my power is perfected in weakness. Therefore, I will most gladly boast all the more about my weaknesses, so that Christ's power may reside in me. So I take pleasure in weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and in difficulty for the sake of Christ. For when I am weak, then I am strong. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. All right, everybody. Here's why this passage is going to be impossible for you to apply to your life apart from the grace of God. I want to start by showing you a picture of me that was taken by me this morning. I believe it's called a selfie. Now, I know what you're thinking. You're thinking, whoa, (laughs) we just figured this picture of neatness and tidiness and professional decorum and sartorial prowess kind of rolled out of bed that way each morning. (laughs) And first of all, thank you. Um, (laughs) You didn't have to say that. Uh, Second of all, the reason I'm looking like this is because I was up half the night. Last night, Renee had another one of her migraines that she gets frequently. And seriously, uh, all jokes aside, if you could pray for Renee to be delivered from these recurring migraines. I know uh, Doug Carr experiences them as well and, and probably others in our church. These migraines are just debilitating. Like they just overwhelm Renee with deep, deep pain to the point where she's almost incoherent, uh, incapable of interacting with anyone around her. She becomes photophobic, like light just destroys her and she basically just has to check out if the constant vomiting doesn't stop her from falling asleep. And so uh, please pray for people with migraines. I caught myself the other day, I had a little headache and I was telling someone about it and I almost said I have a migraine and I stopped myself because migraines are not headaches. They're not even bad headaches. They're a whole nother thing. They're a sentence of death. They are a a, a dark affliction. All right. So pray for an A, pray for Doug, pray for others who are afflicted in this way. But here's the point. I woke up this morning looking like that and... I was instantly defeated by it. 
Like I instantly, I was just like, ah, angry, grumpy, <laughs> disappointed with God. I was like, I can't preach today. I can't preach having had little to no sleep. That's not fair. God, this, I'm doing this for you. You should hook me up. You know, if you want me to preach good and stuff, then you got to get me some sleep. This is crap. Why don't you just stop the migraine from happening in the first place? Why don't you just guarantee at least a good night's sleep before preaching rolls around on Thursday morning, right? Just that my response was so negative, so defeated, so angry, frustrated. And I want you to look right at me now because here's the point. This is why it's going to be so difficult for you to apply this truth to your life. Let me just project onto you for a moment. I failed the test this morning and I failed the test after 10 months of almost every day studying the letter of Paul, the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians. So let me just say that again. Almost every day, 10 months studying a letter and this past week studying a passage which forms like the the climax of the whole book a passage in which verse 9 says God says to Paul my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in weakness So after studying this letter for 10 months, which repeats over and over again, that main big point, and then after spending the week preparing for this sermon, I still failed to apply it to my life. So we're going to need God's help. I know most of you are smarter than I am, godlier than I am, but I'm, you know, we're going to fail if we don't have God's help here. So let me pray for us. Pray for his help. Father, we need your help. You know it. We know it. We're so prone to forget what you've revealed to us in your word. We're so prone to hear it, but not to apply it. So please help us to do that. Speak not only to our minds, but deep into our hearts, into our souls. Make it real for us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so let's jump into the passage for the day. You heard it read for you just before. I want to begin at verse 1. Chapter 12, verse 1. He says, I must go on boasting. Though there is nothing to be gained by it, I will go on to visions and revelations of the Lord. So he's letting us know he's continuing this, what's been called the fool's speech. The fool's speech. Uh, which he's been motoring along through uh, in chapter 11 and now into chapter 12. The fool speech. He's speaking like a fool. He's boasting, and we've seen this is in order to fight fire with fire. It's in order to take those super apostles who are boasting of all of their spiritual prowess and experiences and garnering the attention of the Corinthians in doing so. And Paul wants to flip that on its head and and boast himself, though he hates to do it, though he says there's nothing to be gained by it, he's doing it in order to undermine them in their boasting. 
And so he continues on with this fool's speech. And I think we're going to see that the reason the next four verses that I'm going to read, four or five verses, are so weird, they're written in a kind of strange way, is because Paul just so detests this boasting that he's doing. He wants to distance himself from it. He wants to highlight the fact that this is he's speaking like a fool. This is not how the Lord speaks, as he said in last week's chapter. All right, so let's read it, and I'm sure you'll get the point. Verse 2 to verse 6. He says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up to the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. And he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. On behalf of this man I will boast, but on my own behalf I will not boast, except of my weaknesses. Though if I should wish to boast, I would not be a fool, for I would be speaking the truth. But I refrain from it, so that no one may think more of me than he sees in me or hears from me. Very strange little passage there. And there's a few reasons why it's difficult for us to understand. I've got three reasons. First reason is because he speaks of himself in the third person here. Right? So verse 2 to 3, speaking of himself, he says, I know a man in Christ who 14 years ago was caught up in the third heaven, whether in the body or out of the body, I do not know, God knows. I know that this man was caught up into paradise, whether in the body or out of the body, I don't know, God knows. So I know this man, right? 14 years ago, this, I know a guy in Christ, fellow Christian, who had this experience. Now, it's obvious he's speaking about himself, right? It's really, really obvious. First of all, the first verse tells us that because he says, I'm going to go on boasting about visions and revelations. And then he tells us about the vision and the revelation it's obviously his own experience. Again, in verse 7, he says that in response to having this great vision and revelation, God gave him a thorn in the flesh, a, a messenger of Satan. We'll give, get to that in a second, but right, it's in response to the vision that he has given this thing. So it's obvious that his was the vision, right? So the reason he speaks of himself in the third person, who knows? Maybe it's because he feels so uncomfortable about, about boasting. Maybe it's because he's worried that people will think oh, actually he does love boasting this is just a like a humble brag type situation or who knows but this is the way he chooses to speak about it so that's the first reason it's a little bit tricky to understand the second reason is because the experience that he had that he speaks of was obviously completely overwhelming so he says again verse two and three this thing happened to this guy I know, a friend of mine, um, and and whether it was in the body or out of the body, I don't know. Like he was, he had an experience that was so overwhelming. He doesn't know whether it was happening to him in the flesh or whether he had this kind of out of body experience where he was kind of looking at himself, having this experience. He he mentions it's a vision, it's a revelation, right? It's a little bit vague, and I think it's because the experience itself would have been totally overwhelming. 
people report having this kind of feeling of, of an out-of-body experience when they're totally overwhelmed. Ask my wife, Renee, who, while giving birth to Judah uh, just about seven years ago, uh, next week will be seven years ago, she literally died uh, giving birth. She, she has a blood condition. Uh, we didn't know too much about it at the time. And she, event she essentially bled out, uh, having given birth to Judah, and was resuscitated um, on, in the theatre. And her, she speaks of having this out-of-body experience of viewing the whole thing from up above somewhere. Experiences that are totally overwhelming can do this to us. He's totally overwhelmed by the destination he's taken to. Like he, sp he speaks of the third heaven. This is more reason why it's difficult for us to understand. What's, what's the third heaven? Again, no one's really sure, but uh, some have postulated that this is reflective of the kind of first century biblical cosmology of the day that that there are kind of three layers to heaven so you have the the air around us the kind of atmosphere around us first heaven the heavens then you've got the stars right what the the bible calls the firmament right the 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 heavenly bodies that that's the second heaven and then you have in the third heaven paradise that is um, the dwelling place of god himself Remember, Jesus says to the thief on the cross as he's crucified, he, the, the thief expresses faith in Jesus and Jesus says to him, today you will be with me in paradise, right? With me in paradise, the very dwelling place of God. And so it seems like if that's, if that's a true reflection of what Paul's thinking, he is taken, whether in the body or out of the body, he doesn't know, God knows, but taken into the very presence of God, which it would obviously be a completely overwhelming experience. And then the third and most obvious reason is because he says there in verse 4, uh, he heard things that cannot be told, which man may not utter. So he's essentially forbidden from telling us about the experience or at least telling us what God told him in that experience. So he necessarily has to leave out detail that would otherwise give us more idea about what's going on here. What's the point then? The point of sharing this story is to give him a platform, give him an introduction into the key point he wants to make. It's the key point of this chapter. It might be the key point of the whole book. Right, here's, here's what he says, verse 7 to 9. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Right, so here's... Here's what's going on in that in verse 7. The, the purpose of the thorn in the flesh, the messenger of Satan, which we'll get to in a second, was to keep him from becoming puffed up, which is, as we know, this can happen so easily to people who have profound spiritual experiences, right? 
who are granted these gifts by God to experience deep revelation of him, the danger there is that they become puffed up. They think, well, maybe I'm a little bit more spiritual than you are because I've had this experience. That's exactly what the super apostles were saying. They were boasting of all these charismatic, over-the-top spiritual experiences, and it was puffing them up. So Paul continues in verse 8. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. That's the point of this passage. That's the purpose of him sharing with us, probably for the first time that we know of, not recorded in Acts or anywhere else, this experience of deep and profound revelation from God. The purpose is to give us, uh, give him a platform to introduce the key point, which is God's power is made perfect in weakness. Now, before we get to the application of that verse for us, let me just linger for a little bit on this thorn that he speaks of, this messenger of Satan that he speaks of. Again, we can see the purpose of it. God gives it to him, whatever it is, and we don't know what it is. No one does. Uh, whatever it is, whatever the affliction, the early church fathers kind of um, made a guess at what this might be. Some said it was a problem with his eyesight. Others said it was depression or anxiety. Others said that it was his enemies in Corinth. The, the truth is nobody knows. It's a bit like the, the, the whole thing about when Jesus comes back. All these people for 2,000 years have tried to guess. The point is, you don't know, all right? Nobody knows. And it's the same with this. Nobody knows what this affliction was. And I think that's good because it means... It can be generally applied to us. If, if this affliction, this weakness, uh, this messenger of Satan, this thorn in the flesh, if it was just like, I don't know, a weakness for chocolate cake, then only the people who have a weakness for chocolate cake would apply it to their lives, all right? Or, or, that's a bad example because just about everyone does. But all right, so let's go with um, loss of eyesight. If it was that, then those of us with good eyesight would have no application. But the point is, he doesn't give it to us so that it can be generally applied to all people. If you experience any kind of weakness, then you can apply the principle that Paul applies to the thorn in the flesh. Now, the reason that God gives him this affliction, this thorn, is to keep him from becoming conceited, puffed up, right, overly elated. I wonder if you've ever seen those incredible tall ships. They sometimes uh, sail into, uh, into Melbourne. I remember as a really little kid uh, going to see these, these, essentially these replicas of these really old wooden tall ships. Uh, I, I, all I remember is we had to get up while it was still dark 
and we watched them from a beach somewhere. So I don't know where it was. I imagine they were sailing into Port Phillip Bay. And anyway, these tall ships, they're incredibly tall, these masts that go up several stories high. And I remember coming home from that and my brothers and I making, trying to make some tall ships, right? We thought they were pretty cool. So we'll make some tall ships out of wood and just hammering stuff together. And, and, and the problem with the ships we made was that the, the masts were so tall and the sails were so big that as soon as you put them on the water, they just flipped over, right? They just capsized immediately. What we lacked in our little models was, was what those ships have, which is a great deal of ballast, right? Normally seawater pumped into the hull of the ship, I guess, um, to weigh it down in the water and to counteract the, 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 topping, the toppling tendency of those enormous masts. And so that's what's going on for Paul here. This thorn in the flesh, this affliction, whatever it is, a messenger of Satan, though under the sovereign hand of God, sent to him to keep him from becoming capsized, to keep him from becoming conceited, to give him the ballast that he needs to function as Christ's apostle to function as an emissary of Christ, to, to function as an imitator of Christ in his humility. So we don't know what it was, but we know why it was given to him. And the result of this is he pleads, right? He pleads. Verse 8, he says, Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. And I just think, Fair enough, right? If you're Paul and you have given yourself body and soul over to the mission, right? This mission effort to the Gentiles, to traveling all around the Mediterranean and Asia Minor and the ancient Near East. And you've got plans to go to Spain eventually with the gospel. And you're, you're just experiencing sufferings after sufferings, beatings and whippings and shipwrecks and hunger and nakedness and cold and thirst and all like if you're going through all of that wouldn't you just say to god can you ease up a little like i can deal with these things that are going on that are circumstantial but do you have to add anything to to to, to my list of sufferings can you take it away now, Lord? Like, of course you're going to say that. That's, that's, that's obviously a very human response. And yet God gives his answer. Verse 9, he said to me, My grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. God's answer is no. No, I won't take it away. Why? Because there's something for you to learn here, Paul. You need to learn that my grace is sufficient. Where you are deficient, my grace is sufficient. Where you are weak, I am strong. That's what Paul had to learn. 
and he went on learning it over the course of the, the next 14 years up to this point where he's writing this book. And lest we think that God's answer of no is an indication that he is somehow removing himself from Paul, somehow removing his blessing from Paul, somehow casting him away or breaking his promise never to leave or forsake Paul. I love the way what the Paul says it in the second part of that verse 9. He says, Therefore I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses, so that the power of Christ may rest on me. That's a beautiful image that he gives. That as he experiences weakness, the power of Christ rests on him. And the language there is the same language of, of uh, the language that God uses when he talks about making a tabernacle in the midst of the people of God. Right When he says he, he will dwell with them in the tabernacle or the temple, that's the same language here, that the power of Christ may rest on me. It's that the, the power of God might dwell on me, dwell in me, take up residence with me. So far from being an example of God abandoning him, Paul sees it as actually this is when God is really with me. It's in the midst of my weaknesses. I remember years and years ago now, just out the, the, in the foyer down the hallway from where I am right now, uh, a, a local minister who I would got to know uh, had dropped in to say hi and I was, we were just chatting and I told him about this great piece of news. I don't remember exactly what it was, but it, it, was, it was a really good piece of news. Um, something that we had really hoped for and prayed for was going to happen. And his response was to say, ah, oh, that's how you know that God's with you. Now, that is true, right? When, when we experience fruitfulness in our ministry or in our family or in our, just in life, that's evidence God is with us because every good gift comes from the Father of lights, as James says, right? So, yes, that's true. But also, when we are weak, when we are suffering, when we are being kept up through the night, when we are experiencing the brokenness of this world, it is then that God and the power of God rests on us, dwells with us. So I can just see Paul spending those 14 years learning this truth, learning it deeply, and that's why it saturates this letter. That truth about God's power being made perfect in weakness saturates this letter. I, I could read 20 passages, but I'm only going to read two. You're welcome. First of all, going all the way back to chapter 1 where we began in verse 8 and 9, he says, We do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. That exact same dynamic worked out back in the first chapter. Skip over, over to chapter 4. Another famous passage from this book. I don't know if you've realized, Jimmy was talking to me about this last week. 
all through 2 Corinthians, there are just these key texts that just about every Christian knows. They've become like slogans for the Christian life. And here's another one, right? Uh, Chapter 4, verse 7. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. Right? This, this letter is just replete with that message. Now, there is someone else. We have Paul as an example. There's someone else I know in Christ who has learned this lesson and learned it well. And I want you to be able to receive what they have learned, this wisdom that they have garnered through the furnace, through the the crucible of weakness. I want you to learn from them for the next few minutes. So I'm going to hand over to Sarah Young to speak to you now. When was the last time you prayed the simple prayer, God, I need you? It's a short but powerful statement that recognises our need for God and admits it to him. So where are you weak? Where are you limited? Where are you empty? And what if that weakness or that limitation were actually an invitation from God himself to lean on him and to see his glory and his strength on display in your life. This uh, is what I looked like three years ago. Uh, Many of you would remember that in 2017, I was diagnosed with a type of non-Hodgkin's lymphoma. Um, And this picture was taken by our lovely friend, Kathy, uh, about six months into chemotherapy. And there is one word that I would use to describe that time in my life, that season and valley in my life. And the word I use is empty. Uh, I felt like a shell during that time. I felt absolutely emptied of, of everything, absolutely weak. And the I need you God prayer was one that I prayed many, many moments of the day during that season. I was very aware and confronted with my need for God being emptied and not having any strength of my own to rely on at that time. And for you, your current weakness might not be cancer. It is one of many weaknesses uh, where God empties us or where we become aware of our need for him. Maybe for you it's not cancer, but it's a different valley. Maybe your valley is sorrow or anxiety Maybe your valley is criticism from others or mistreatment from others. Maybe your valley is difficult relationships and things like that. Whatever your valley, cancer, all of these other different ones, these are unique opportunities that we have where God empties us of our strength. We seem emptied and completely weak, left in positions to rely on God in ways that we don't otherwise 
rely on him. We're prompted to rely on him in new ways. There's this unique thing and beautiful thing that happens when someone becomes aware of their need for God. They recognise and admit their weakness and their emptiness and they throw themselves upon the mercy of this God who we worship, who calls himself strong, who calls himself merciful, who calls himself loving. What a unique situation. We're emptied of ourselves. We're invited to show off God's glory, to show off God's strength in our weakness. And for Paul, he knew this. Uh, We've just read, and we can read again, that he boasted in his weakness so that Christ's strength would rest on him, so that he could show off what God could do, even though he couldn't do it himself. And for me at the moment, my weakness at the moment, as you can tell, is not cancer. I've got my hair back, which is great. I've got my energy back. There are still weaknesses that I deal with day to day. But for me today, the temptation is not necessarily anxiety about cancer coming back. I think the biggest thing I need to be aware of these days is the temptation to become self-sufficient rather than recognise that God's grace is sufficient for me, as Paul says. For each of us, if we can't think of a current weakness, there is one that is constantly with us, the weakness of our sin and our sinful nature. Uh, We are all weak in that area. We all have our individual struggles and we all have the opportunity day after day, moment after moment, to recognise that we need God. We need God's grace to conquer our sin. So if you can't think of anything else, that is one area where we should be admitting our weakness and letting God's strength be on display and changing us day after day. One particular prayer that I found really helpful um, during that season in 2017 was one by John Piper. It's kind of like a poem and he says this, I'll leave you with this. When every cry I can't, when yet in fact I must, become by grace I can and then in him I trust. Thank you, Sarah. I'm so grateful to you for being willing to share your own experience of God's power in human weakness. So thank you for that. Now, just to, to finish us up now, I, wa- I, wanna, I want us to think about how we can apply this truth to our lives. Remember the difficulty we have in our flesh to actually apply this truth to ourselves. It's one thing to say, yep, Paul's saying that, and it was true for Paul, and that's great for Paul, but what about us? Are we able to say what he says? Are we able to come to a position where we can, where we can say, like he says in verse 10, For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions and calamities for when I am weak then I am strong are we able by the grace of God and the power of the Spirit to come to a place where we can say I am content with weaknesses 
I want to finish by giving you three reasons that we ought to be content with weaknesses. Okay? Three reasons to be content with weaknesses. Number one, we can be content with weaknesses if we know that they help us to minister to suffering souls. I think just about every one of you will be able to recognize this truth in your own experience, either having ministered to someone or being ministered to by someone who has experienced weakness. So experiencing these weaknesses enable us, help us to minister to suffering souls. I want to give you an example from the life of Charles Spurgeon, the great prince of preachers, uh, one of the greatest preachers the world has ever known who also suffered terribly with depression. He writes this, One Sabbath morning I preached from the text, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And though I did not say so, yet I preached my own experience. I heard my own chains clank while I tried to preach to my fellow prisoners in the dark, but I could not tell why I was brought into such an awful horror of darkness for which I condemned myself. On the following Monday evening, a man came to see me who bore all the marks of despair upon his countenance. His hair seemed to stand upright, and his eyes were ready to start from their sockets. He said to me, after a little parleying, I never before in my life heard any man speak who seemed to know my heart. Mine is a terrible case. But on Sunday morning you painted me to the life and preached as if you had been inside my soul. Spurgeon says, By God's grace I saved that man from suicide and led him into gospel light and liberty. But I know I could not have done it if I had not myself being confined in the dungeon in which he lay. He goes on, I tell you the story, brethren, because you sometimes may not understand your own experience, and the perfect people may condemn you for having it. But what know they of God's servants? You and I have to suffer much for the sake of the people of our charge. You may be in Egyptian darkness, and you may wonder why such a horror chills your marrow, but you may be altogether in the pursuit of your calling and be led of the Spirit to a position of sympathy with desponding minds. First reason we should be content with weakness is because it enables us, it helps us, to minister to suffering souls. The second reason is our sufferings, our weaknesses, they keep us dependent on God. 
I want to tell you about someone you've probably never heard of, a lady named Henrietta Mears, who lived in the 20th century and was one of the most profound influences on evangelicalism worldwide. She was an American and she was an educationalist and she laboured all of her life that people would know the gospel of Jesus. She had a profound influence over some very influential people. She was one of the key shapers of Billy Graham himself. Billy Graham. One of the, the, the powerhouses of gospel ministry in the 20th century. She shaped him and yet we've hardly ever heard of her. Part of the reason for that is because she doesn't appear to us like much of a powerhouse herself. She suffered all of her life with myopia and with failing eyesight. And she said something so countercultural towards the end of her days. So counterintuitive. This is what she said. I believe the greatest spiritual asset throughout my entire life has been my failing sight. Why? It has kept me absolutely dependent on God. The reason she was able to delight in her weakness, the reason she was able to see her failing sight as an asset was because it had the utility, it had the effect of keeping her utterly dependent on God. It's the second reason why we should be content with our weaknesses. First, that they help us to minister to suffering souls. Second, that they keep us dependent on God. And thirdly and finally, they remind us where strength comes from. The reason that I was despairing this morning after having so little sleep and knowing that I needed to preach, the reason that I was despairing is because I rely on my own strength to get stuff done. It can be the only answer, the only reason. If I'm all consumed with my own capacity to get stuff done, then of course I'm going to despair if those capacities are diminished. But weakness... Weakness helps me to see actually the power for this ministry right now, this preaching, indeed the power to fulfill any of God's calls on my life comes not from self, but from God himself. I want to read to you the experience of John Stott, the great Anglican preacher and theologian, of, again, of the 20th century read you a little story about what happened to him and how he learned this truth very profoundly. So in 1958, John Stott led a university outreach in Sydney, Australia. He received word of his father's death the day before the final meeting and at the same time was beginning to lose his voice. He describes the final day of outreach as follows. It was already late afternoon within a few hours of the final meeting of the mission. So I didn't feel I could back away at that time on account of his father's death. 
and his faltering voice. I went to the great hall and asked a few students to gather round me. I asked one of them to read, My grace is sufficient for you, for my strength is made perfect in weakness. A student read these verses and then I asked them to lay hands on me and pray that those verses might be true in my own experience. When time came for me to give my address, I preached on the broad and narrow ways from Matthew 7. I had to get within half an inch of the microphone and I croaked the gospel like a raven. I couldn't exert my personality. I couldn't move. I couldn't use any inflections in my voice. I croaked the gospel in monotone. Then when the time came to give the invitation, there was an immediate response. Larger than any other meeting during the mission, as students came flocking forward. Now reflecting on the impact of that experience, John Stott writes, I've been back to Australia about 10 times since 1958. And on every occasion, somebody has come up to me and said, do you remember that final meeting in the university in the Great Hall? I jolly well do, I reply. Well, they say, I was converted that night. He concludes, The Holy Spirit takes our human words, spoken in great weakness and frailty, and he carries them home with power. That's what God does with our weaknesses and in our weaknesses. He provides the strength. He provides the power. This isn't just true of preaching, as if preaching was some special discipline that God particularly blessed. No, this is true in every area of life to which you are called by God. whether it's at your workplace, in your school, at home with the kids, whatever you find yourself doing, wherever you are seeking first the kingdom, right? Wherever you are exercising life, strength, gifts, energy, wherever you find yourself at work, seeking to put God in first place, he will come into and rest on you with power to make up for the deficiencies of your weakness. That's a fact. Paul says, for Christ's sake, I can boast in my weakness because when I'm weak, then he is strong or then I am strong because his power is at work through me. Right? So wherever we are at work, to make God first, to put him in his rightful, rightful, rightful position. This doesn't apply if you're trying to get things done with him second, third, fourth, fifth place because he doesn't exist in second, fourth, fourth fifth, twentieth, five hundredth place. Right? He's not there. He's not there to manifest his power. But where you have him in his place, in first place, in all that you do, his power rests on on you his presence empowers you 
to be able to live out the calling that he has placed upon you. Be encouraged. Apply this passage. Ask God to give you what he gave to Paul, this contentment, even in the midst of weakness. Now I want to finish with the last verse of this great letter, the second letter of Paul to the Corinthians, this word of grace and blessing over us as we go. Friends, the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all evermore. Amen. Love you guys. See you next week.